you know, just about every week after I preach, uh, Sharina will, will ping me on base camp and ask, what's the title for this sermon? And I always think, ah, who cares? Just make something up, Sharina. You know, come on, quit bothering me. No, I don't think that. Well, uh, uh, this week, I, boy, I read the text and I thought, well, I've got the title right away. And, and the title, Sharina, you know, I want to write this down now, is Earth, Wind, and Fire. Earth, Wind, and Fire. Okay, so if you're my age or older, you know that that's not just a great sermon title name. That's the name of a great band in the 70s who had the best jumpsuits, the best male jumpsuits of any performers in the 70s. And they actually wrote a song about September. So, uh, you can go back and check out the Earth, Wind, and Fire catalog on YouTube or the streaming facility of your choice. But I said Earth, Wind, and Fire before we read the text because now as I read the text, I want you to see if you see why this makes such a great title. All right, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. All right, so I think you see the wind, right, in verse 2. And I think you see the fire in verse 3. Where's the earth? Well, the earth is found in verse 1. Pentecost was the Jewish festival of harvest. It was the Jewish festival celebrating the fruitfulness of God's blessing in their agricultural world. It's their Thanksgiving, right? So that's where the earth is. The earth is in verse 1. It's a reference, Pentecost is a reference to bounty and fruitfulness. Now, this is a significant detail. Luke wants us to see that all of God's gospel work through Jesus is happening on these key festivals, these key feasts. And I want us to see today that there is a unique thing that God's doing through the gospel as he repopulates the Passover category with a new kind of freedom and repopulates the Pentecost category with a new kind of fruitfulness. All right, so that's where we're going to be headed this morning is to see how God has moved through these festivals, which he set up. We're going to look back and understand what's going on in the Old Testament. We're going to move through this, see how God is using those Old Testament festivals to declare a new kind of freedom, a new kind of fruitfulness. Now, if you want to, you can turn to Leviticus 23. You don't need to. I'm not actually going to read from this, but it's actually quite interesting just to see it laid out before you. In Leviticus 23, this is where God's prescribing the festal calendar, and he begins by prescribing, uh, ordering that the Sabbath be observed, right, every week. The next festival he prescribes is the Passover festival, and we'll talk a lot about Passover this morning, so I'll move past that for a moment. Just only just realize that Christ died on Passover, right, and you know that, and so there's, there's, there's God revisiting revisiting what Passover means with the gospel. 
And I would say, I don't even like redefining as the way to describe this. I would say fulfilling, bringing, bringing into its fullness, the full meaning of Passover is realized through Christ. Well, Jesus is resurrected on the next feast you will see in Leviticus 23, which is the Feast of the First Fruits. This is the Sunday after Passover. And you would go out into your fields and you would pick whatever is there. There would be some initial first fruits from your fields. You would pick that and you would dedicate that to God. Now, the Bible makes it really clear, for instance, 1 Corinthians 15 and other texts, that Jesus' resurrection, his bodily resurrection, is the first fruit of God's harvest, right? He's the first fruit from the dead. So Jesus is resurrected on the feast of the first fruits and appears before God as that final uh, form of God's work in the world. Jesus is the first harvest of what will become many sons and daughters physically resurrected to stand before him in glory. So God's revisiting Passover and he's showing us a new kind of freedom. God's revisiting, uh, I don't have good language for this piece of it. God's filling in the feast of the first fruits with Christ. Christ is the first fruit from the dead. And now we get to Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. So if, if you like to think through things chronologically, you can think about that Jesus, after he was raised, spent 40 days amongst his disciples. And then uh, the disciples, after he was ascended, have spent 10 days gathered together in prayer. That's what Acts 2.1 is telling us. Acts 2.1 is saying that the day of Pentecost has arrived. And Pentecost was a feast, was a celebration of fruitfulness. So this is going to be at least a two-parter, but at the end of this, we're going to actually be able to have a biblical definition of success, right? A biblical definition of success. Fruitfulness and success in the scriptures are synonymous, you can find passages where both are actually cited in the same passage as, as synonymous. So we don't use the word fruitfulness often in the way that I'll be talking about it. So if it helps you, you can think about success. But the idea is the same. Fruitfulness and success, same thing in the scriptures. And before we're done today, and we'll also do this again next week, we will have a biblical definition of success. We will have a working biblical definition of success. Now, before I do that, I think I should at least kind of prove to you that this passage that you've heard so often is actually mostly about fruitfulness because you've probably not heard that before. So uh, it seems self-evident to me, and so I didn't even think about this until this morning, and I thought, you know, it seems self-evident to me. I've been studying it for two weeks. Let me, let me take a moment just to kind of walk you through some of the evidences uh, that, are, that are in this text to show that this indeed, Acts chapter 2, is indeed a passage about fruitfulness, a passage about success. So the first evidence is what I just discussed, that this is taking place by God's perfect providence on the harvest festival, right? So that's the first evidence that this passage is about fruitfulness is that it's taking place in God's timing on the harvest festival. The next one I would just point you to, and we'll get to this passage, uh, this verse later, a few weeks from now, verse 17, Peter begins to discuss Joel, the book of Joel, the Old Testament book of Joel, chapter two, and I think it goes 28 and 29. Uh, that's that's uh, God pouring out his spirit on the people and, and, and the, the men and the women receiving 
uh, utterance from prophetic utterance from from the Lord, uh, receiving dreams and visions from the Lord. Well, the whole context of Joel, if you start verse one, chapter one, and read all the way up to where Peter goes, the whole context of Joel is that a horrible famine has settled in on God's people. And, and he describes this famine, God does in Joel, as something that has been both self-inflicted and not self-inflicted, inflicted by, uh, by, by external enemies. So that he talks about the locusts coming and devouring everything. And there's this whole picture of a wasteland, of God's land as a wasteland. I think it's in uh, earlier, I think maybe verse 17 or so in Joel 2, it gets to the point where the land is so barren because of their sin and because of the enemy's uh, you know, pillaging of the land that, that there's that famous refrain that appears all over scripture, which is they say, why will the nation say, where is your God? You know, look at this wasteland, look at this devastation. Why would the nation say, where is your God? Well, as you progress through Joel, God then says, you know, pray, humble yourselves, repent and pray for God to restore your land. And then as you progress a little bit further, God says, I will send the rain. I will send the former rains and the latter rains. And he begins to describe this desert place made desolate by sin, made into something, you know, beautiful and green and fruitful through God's work. That whole process is leading up to what Peter describes in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, when he references Joel 2, 28, 29, uh, he's referencing the climax of God's restoration from desolation into fruitfulness. So that's another evidence that this passage is about fruitfulness. The third one would be that there's an undoing of Babel that occurs in Acts chapter 2. Maybe you've seen that, maybe you haven't. We got to the very edge of that idea in verse 4 of chapter 2, and that's simply the idea that through the gospel, God will undo the confusion of languages which he inflicted on the world in the book of Genesis at the Tower of Babel. Now, why did God do that at that time? Why, why did God divide the languages? Why did he confuse the languages? Well, he did that as a judgment and a discipline to create futility, right? If you actually go back and read that text, you'll see that the reason he did that was to frustrate their progress, it's a revisiting of the, of, the, of the garden curse, which is to work the ground in futility. And so he, he frustrates and separates and divides them because they can accomplish less that way, less evil. So this reunion of Babel, this re, the revisiting of Babel, is actually uh, God, God bringing fruitfulness through the gospel back into the world. And my goodness, if you know history, it's happened. The last 2,000 years have been spectacular when it comes to fruitfulness compared to the thousands of years previous to it. Really, truly. So, so there's another evidence that this passage is about fruitfulness. And finally, I think we've talked about this quite a bit. You're probably tired of me hearing about, or tired of me talking about it. But we do remember all the way back at the beginning of the Bible when God issues commands, they don't go away. They're always fulfilled, and they're always fulfilled in Jesus. Well, God's original command to man, right, was to rule and subdue the earth and be fruitful and multiply. And I think we've shown repeatedly throughout the years, last year or so, 
that the fulfillment of that is Jesus as the new and perfect Adam and his bride, the new and perfect being perfected Eve. And the way that they're ruling and subduing and being fruitful and multiplying is how? By going into the world and making disciples. That's the, that's, that's, the, that's the final vision of God's original command to rule and subdue and fill the earth. So there are multiple layers and multiple reasons why I think that Acts 2 is God's way of saying, hey, I want you to see what success looks like. I want you to see my vision for fruitfulness. Now, before I go on to give you a very clear definition of fruitfulness in this text, I just want to ask you a couple questions. I hope you'll realize how pivotal this issue is, this this definition of success. The first one is this. We all get our definition of success from somewhere, right? We all get our definition of success from somewhere. Where do you get yours? Now, that's kind of a, a, you know, a a bit of an easy, difficult question to answer, but, and you may not be able to answer it this moment, but this one you can. Do you think that it wouldn't be too far of a stretch for me to say that the place you go to get your definition of success is your functional God? Do you think that's a stretch? Do you think that's just preacher talk there? Or do you think that's probably legit? That the place you go to get your definition of success is your functional God? I don't think that's hyperbole. I think that's pretty pretty accurate. So if you go to yourself for your definition of success, I think that's your functional God. If you go to the crowd, a particular crowd, I think that's your functional God. We are always in danger of outsourcing our definition of success to some lesser God. Uh, Second question. Can you understand how dangerous it would be or it is to not have a firm definition of success at all? In other words, when I asked, where do you go for your definition of success? You may say, I don't really know if I have one. And that would just be, to me, something that you should think of as, that's not good, right? That's not good. It's not good to not have a definition of success. It's definitely not good to spend another breath that God has given you on this life without a clear definition of success. And it's certainly not good uh, for you to allow that definition of success to change like a weather vane, depending on the prevailing winds. You know, my kids and I used to invent stories on our long road trips, and we would come up with, you know, some, you know, we'd just write stories in our heads, and we'd talk them through. And we had one called the GPS killer. And this was a guy who was a serial killer, and he would hijack people's GPS while they're on road trips, and he would send them to his cabin, you know, and then kill them, right? So, good morning, Cheer- cheerful thoughts, I know. Well, the GPS killer, I immediately thought of the GPS killer when I, when I, when I thought about this idea of going through life without a definition of success. You know, if you go through life without a clear, tattooable definition of success, then really what you're doing is you're allowing external forces to constantly hijack your, your sort of your whole inner GPS and drive you and steer you where they want you to go. You know, you, we've got to have a clear definition of success. We can't just say, well, that's something that maybe will, will come later. Third question, doesn't it make sense 
to have the same definition of success that the creator of this reality uses to run the world. Right? Doesn't it make sense to have the same definition of winning that the creator of this whole thing uses and used to design it and build it and govern it and rule it? You know, you can't win at something by playing by your own created rules. Uh, in seventh grade, I was tall, not as tall as Wes, but I was tall for my age. And, uh, you know, everybody wanted me to play basketball. And so I kind of fell into the pressure to play basketball. I didn't like basketball. It was, it was not physical enough. And uh, so, I, so, so I did it, but I didn't like it. And I remember I sat on the bench most of the year, and they put me in in a game. And I, uh, I remember going in and getting a rebound and running down the court. I was totally free, running down the court and, like, just completely unen- unencumbered. I'm, I'm not that fast. Uh, well, I am now. I wasn't then. Uh, I'm super fast now. But, uh, but I just want to be – I don't want to lie from the, from the pulpit. Um, so so I, I'm running down the court – and I make the layup and realize that I had done the thing, like the, the second worst thing next to showing up naked to school, you know, and that is to, to make a shot in your opponents, in your own, in your own goal. I ran the wrong way and, and made a layup. That was the one point I scored in, in basketball, in organized basketball. That was my last game. Everybody agreed that it was a mistake, that I had been unfairly profiled for my height and but you know, you know, running in the wrong direction. I mean, I could, I was fully convinced that that was the right thing. I was sure of it. You know, here's the funny thing: there were a lot of girls that I liked that were cheerleaders on that team, and I could hear them screaming. And I interpreted their screaming as cheers for me. You know, in the moment, like I'm looking at them, like, "Hey, Angie, what's?" And and I'm like, "I'm winning, right? I'm winning." No, I wasn't winning. They weren't cheering for me. They were yelling at me to turn around and go the other direction. If you don't have a clear, God-given definition of success, uh, you may think you're doing the right thing. You may think you're headed in the right direction. You may think that uh, the world is in even agreement with you, even, even perhaps that the Bible is in agreement with you, and you could just be dead wrong all around. So this idea of having a clear definition of success is essential, and I believe Acts 2 is a unique passage in some ways, and in some ways not a unique passage, and then it gives us God's clear definition of success. It's the only one that God has, it's the only one you should have, and it's actionable. What do I mean by actionable? You can act on this definition of success. You can pursue this, you can make this your life, You can make this your heartbeat. You can tattoo it on your forehead if you choose. This is absolutely 100% the only way to live. How about that for exclusivism right there? I just said this is absolutely 100% the only way to live. Now let's look back at that text again, verse 1, Acts 2. And let's see if we can pull this out. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So here's God's definition of success. God's presence with God's people producing God's praise. God's presence, wind, fire, filled with the Spirit, all signifying God's presence. With God's people, they were all together. The fire rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. God's presence with God's people, producing God's praise. Verse 5 continues, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. And at that this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And this is God's presence in God's people producing God's praise, both inwardly and outwardly. The inward praise of the congregation overflows onto the streets and many come to faith in Jesus. Guys, I really do want you to understand this is the only definition of winning. This is the only one. This is the point of life. You need to spend your whole life, all your life, seeking this. God's presence in God's people producing God's praise. God's presence in God's people producing God's praise. This is the creator's fully realized version of success. This is where all of history is heading. This is how it's all going to end. This is what winning looks like, and God will win. If you want to be successful, you will seek this and this alone with all your heart. God's presence in God's people for God's praise. Again, this standard to me seems self-evident. I think if you just went through the scriptures, you could go through list after list of God saying, I will do this or I will do that for the sake of my name. God's sole motivation, his, his essential motivation in action is to bring praise to his name for all of eternity. And I'm not going to walk you through the first four chapters of John Piper's book, Desiring God, to prove that to you. He does a good job of picking every verse you could possibly think of in the scriptures and laying that out for you. If you need convincing that God's central goal, that God's definition of winning is that he is seeking to produce his praise by putting his presence in his people. And read the first few chapters of Desiring God. Don't even have to read the whole book. So the first, one thing I will do before we go on is just ask the simple answer. A simple question that often comes up when you realize that that's God's central purpose. That's his definition of winning. That's how he is. That's what, why he's doing everything that he's doing. Isn't God vain in seeking this? Isn't God vain in seeking his own name to be praised for all of eternity? And I would just say, yes. Uh, if God were not God, it would indeed be vain for him to seek his praise as the end of all things for all of eternity. And that's why you should stop doing that. Right? 
most of the time when we listen to the objections we have against the nature of God, we find that we don't have an objection against the action God is taking because we do the very same things. We have an objection to God being God. We want to be God. The truth is, is that most of us, our definition of success is the same as God's, just ending on us and not on God, right? The truth is, is that most of us, if we really were pressed to give a definition of how our lives have operated and been guided for the last whatever number of years, the answer has been very similar to God's. We have been seeking for our name to be glorified amongst the people of the world. So, so our objection to God's action of doing everything for his praise is self-indicting. Because if we were to slow play the tape of your life and ask, now, why'd you do that? Now, why'd you say that? Why didn't you do this or say this? The truth is, is that it's all been a massive glory hunt. All of it. This also means, by the way, that we are really close to getting it right. We need God's help. We'll talk about this more next week. We need God's help to move off of seeking our own glory and seeking God's glory. But the truth is, is that we at least have the basic idea down, which is to live our whole lives for another person's glory. We're not that far off. God, God can redeem this. He can make this true. But we need to understand that this isn't, this isn't, um, this isn't optional. Uh, And we need to understand that if you are not wholeheartedly seeking God's presence in God's people for God's praise, you are wasting your life. You're wasting your life. That's just as simple as it gets. You know, oftentimes when we talk about this idea that all of life is for God's praise and that my sole motivation should be to see God's presence in God's people for God's praise, we start to think of austerity, that this is a very thin way to live, right? That, that seeking God's praise in all things is sort of like um, turning off the color on the TV and going back to black and white. It's, it's assuming that making God the center of everything dims the quality and enjoyment of everything or even more so like we're moving from eating a full diet right of all sorts of foods to only eating one thing like you know manna this sort of like okay that moving from the way you're living your life right now to living a life solely devoted to God's presence and God's people for God's praise would somehow be austerity but Assuming that I'm right in saying that God has been doing this all along, right? So, so my, I think the Bible says very clearly that what God has been about the whole time, before there was time, is seeking his praise, seeking his glory. Assuming that's true, then I just would tell you to look around and look what he's doing. Does this look austere to you? Does this look like thin soup to you? You know, after you're in the hospital, they give you chicken broth and it's just 
barely food. You know, it's just barely food. It's not, it's really not mostly food. It's mostly not food. It's just barely food. I think we think of seeking God's glory as moving into the barely food category. But if all that God has been about this whole time was to seek his own praise, was to bring glory to his own name, to build up an eternity of praise for his own name, well, look what he's done. Look how he's acted throughout creation history. Look what he's made. Look how he's blessed. Look how thick life is. This is not a thin soup, folks. God's not a monk. He's not a cheapskate. He's not a stoic. The world is thick with pleasure and danger. And it's a world created by someone seeking his own glory. And if you seek God's glory singularly, only, fully, completely sell out to it, your life's not going to be thin soup. It's going to be full of pleasure and danger. It's going to be full of nuance and difficulty and ups and downs and and hard things and sweet things. Because that's who God is. God's all those things. So, if anything, making God the singular purpose of your life, seeking God's presence and God's people for God's praise, if anything, that gives you the antidote to austerity. That gives you the antidote to the thin soup problem. Here's the thing. As long as you seek your own praise, your life is incredibly fragile. And your ability to win is incredibly dependent on a whole bunch of things outside your control. You know, just as soon, you know, I've, I raised two girls, two beautiful girls. You know, just as soon, when you, and I've seen them go through awkward and the whole thing. Uh, some of them are still moving through. Uh, uh, but, you know, just as soon as you're, you're this pretty girl, you know, you realize, well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm kind of pretty. And, you know, I, as soon as you kind of realize this, you know, as soon as it starts clicking, clicking there, you know, it starts to pass away. Beauty fades. You know, a, a guy, a guy realizes, you know, I'm, I'm actually pretty strong. I actually have physical cap- capabilities. You know, I remember hiking on 20 mile hikes and then, you know, coming in to camp after a 20 mile hike and playing football the rest of the night with my friends, you know, you know, you revel in this and you think, you know, this is, this makes me feel good about myself. This makes me feel good, you know, and then it fades. Whatever, whatever you're using right now to seek your glory is just so fragile. You know, there's a, there's a physical poverty to which we're all headed if you've ever been poor, poverty is the absence of choices. You know, it's just like, it's just, I don't have any choices. I just, this, you know, wealth is the, is the multiplication of choices. Poverty is the absence of choices. You know, we're all headed to a physical poverty. Every one of us will get to a place where our bodies will not do what we want them to do. And it will get worse from there. They'll start doing things we don't want them to do. So your plan, as it's progressing right now, to live life for your glory is dependent on so many factors that are fading, fragile, and outside of your control. But a person who seeks God's presence and God's people for his praise can move through every 
kind of season of life and still win and still be successful because that person's success is not dependent on external factors. That person's success is dependent on the God of the universe doing what he wants to do. So, so there's, a, there's a, a beauty in being anti-fragile, as, as a popular author wrote a few years ago. Anti-fragile. Not only can I endure hardship, but hardship actually makes me better. Well, pursuing God's presence in God's people for God's praise is the only way to live a truly anti-fragile life. Acts 2 is the unfolding of an anti-fragile fruitfulness. A lot of it looks like fun. A lot of it looks like exaltation and goodness and joy. And some of it looks hard, but all of it, friends, all of it, every bit of it looks like winning. Because God's presence in God's people for God's praise will continue ad infinitum. That's the way God is moving all of history. Now, I want to say one last thing, and that is simply that if you are pursuing this, God's praise, with 40% of your life and some other uh, vision, some other definition of success with 60 part of percent of your life. You're wasting both. Uh, This is the one case where diversifying your portfolio is going to create danger for you. Stop. Just stop. Just, Just stop doing, trying to do two things. The Bible's really clear. You're, you're on a, you're on a, on a railroad that you can't get off of when you try to serve two masters, you have no choices. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. You cannot serve two masters. You will hate one. You will love the other. Just stop. I said a number of months ago that my whole goal in life is to be true all the way through. Well, that means not apportioning my definitions of success. That means betting it all on one and going all in on one vision of winning And that vision of winning involves seeking God's presence with God's people for God's praise. And do that with every bit of my life. And friends, if you're not doing that, you're wasting your life. And if you are doing that, you'll never lose your life. Well, I want to keep this connection to Passover and Pentecost for the remainder of our time. And then next week we'll go forward and discuss this more, you know, forward into the text. But I want us to just remember this sequence of events because it really is key in our understanding of what fruitfulness looks like and where fruitfulness comes from. So in the same way that Passover precedes Pentecost in history, Passover comes before Pentecost in history. The the Jews were released from their slavery in Egypt and then brought into the promised land through much difficulty of their own making, brought into the promised land, and there they found a fruitfulness, a measure of fruitfulness. So in the same way that Pentecost or Passover comes before Pentecost, we need to understand that freedom always comes before faithfulness. 
freedom, oh, I'm sorry, freedom always comes before fruitfulness. Freedom always comes before fruitfulness. You can't be fruitful unless you're free. You can't be fruitful unless you're free. Um, in order to pursue and possess the faith, the fruitfulness that God has for you, you must be free from the enslaving power of sin. So I want to go through the Passover story quickly, because if you'll, if you'll think about it, these disciples are, are you know, they're, 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 they're full of this stuff. The, the festal calendar is a part of who they are. All that they're seeing God doing from the sacrificing of his own son during the Passover, the raising of Jesus during the first fruits, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit during the Pentecost. This is just second nature to them. In order for us to navigate these texts, we kind of need to make it not second nature, but we need to take extra time to understand what would have just been immediate for them. So we want to take some time here to just close out thinking about the connection on the calendar and in God's order between freedom and fruitfulness. So just to go back, there was a famine in the land that caused all of Israel to join Joseph, the brother they'd sacrificed, uh, in a, and I mean in a bad way, uh, the brother they'd given up to join him in Egypt in order to survive. A famine forced them into Egypt originally. They're there for centuries and become slaves of the Egyptian government. They are in literal slavery. They have no choices. They are, they, are, they are in old school slavery. God's work in the original Passover was to bring them out of that physical slavery, right? And that he did. Through the offering of a lamb that was shed, the blood, the blood of which was shed on the doorposts over the homes of the faithful, God spared his people from the passing judgment of death on the Egyptians and made them free. And that was how Passover was celebrated for a very long time. Jesus came and said, inferred, demonstrated that his death would bring a deeper freedom, right? His death, his Passover death, he was a better lamb for a better freedom from a far worse kind of slavery. What we see in the story of the Passover is the opportunity to step immediately into faithfulness, but that is delayed because they are not actually free. You know, they say it's an 11-day journey or something from Egypt to the Promised Land. They could have been shucking corn, you know, to, you know, a couple weeks after being freed from slavery. They could have walked out of that slavery into fruitfulness. They could have used that freedom to go into fruitfulness, but they could not because the Passover provided originally could remove a man from slavery, but could not remove slavery from the heart of man. They were all bound up inside to sin. They remained slaves to sin. And Jesus coming and offering of himself as the new Passover lamb gives us a new freedom, a deeper freedom, a truer freedom, where we are no longer slaves to sin. 
So this is the basic shift, the basic redefining of freedom we see with Passover. From a political freedom, from a physical freedom, to a spiritual freedom. Christ's sacrifice is a better freedom for us. It, it, it makes us free in a different way, which solves the basic problem that has always stood in the way of our true fruitfulness. Our basic, the, th- the thing that basically keeps us from success is our wandering and squandering hearts enslaved to sin. That's the thing that keeps us from fruitfulness. And Christ, in offering himself as a sacrifice to free us from sin, frees us from the wandering and squandering hearts. Now, plenty of 18 to 20-somethings have experienced this very thing. I experienced it just a little earlier because I was especially rebellious and an early bloomer in my rebellion. But many of us have experienced straying from the Lord as we reach our first taste of freedom right? That we get this first taste of freedom and we stray because we were not prepared for the freedom that we received. That's true of all of us. Here's the basic adage. Sin turns privileges and pleasures into prisons every time. Every time. You get privileges, sin will turn it into a prison. You get new pleasures, Sin will turn it into a new prison. That is how our sinful hearts work. So we could never enjoy, never experience true success, true fruitfulness, if God didn't do something about our sin. If freedom doesn't come before fruitfulness, we cannot have fruitfulness. You know, Proverbs 25, 28 is one of the most devastating scriptures I've read in a long time, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. The idea is that a man who hasn't had his heart changed by the gospel is like a city where the walls have been broken down and all of the good things, all of the potential, all of the treasure, all of the goodness is just squandered because he lacks self-control. He lacks self-discipline. Well, where does self-discipline and self-control come? It comes from Jesus doing a work in our hearts that frees us from our love of sin, our slavery to sin. It comes from the new and better Passover. Now, we're going to wrap up because we've just covered a lot, and we'll go back to this again next week. But I want to leave us with this idea. You were freed... To be fruitful. You are freed to be fruitful. That's the basic idea. You are freed to be fruitful. 